Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome back to 1 Corinthians, Church at its Worst. And boy, these couple of chapters we're in now, chapter 5 last week, chapter 6 this week, and and the next week, they definitely earn that moniker. These are issues in the church that Paul just feels are so serious he has to address them, and so he does. So I need to make the same public service announcements for next week's sermon as I did for last week's sermon. This week, the one you're watching now, totally PG, no worries. Um, But next week, again, uh, we'll get into some fairly explicit things. You know, if last week's sermon was PG-13+, plus, well, next week's is definitely R. So let me say the same thing I said last time. Parents, if you're watching this with your kids, uh, I urge you to check out the sermon ahead of time and make sure you're okay with everything we're going to talk about. Because when the scripture talks about it, we're going to talk about it. But you could end up answering some uh, difficult questions if you're not ready. Or if you're planning on coming to church, and let me absolutely encourage you to come to church and be with us and fellowship with us on Sunday morning. Again, read the second half of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Make sure you're okay with this topic. Put your kids in children's church, whatever you need to do there. You're the parents, that's your decision. So if you remember last week, we were talking about the issue of judging. And I told you that this word judging, whenever you read it in the scriptures to judge, it's always the the judging that I said was over here, the really serious one, the almost legal term, the idea of pronouncing guilt or innocence, of condemning, of stating punishment, that sort of thing. It almost never means this idea over here of judging, the, the really weak idea of just, I, you know, I had an opinion like, oh, how tall do you think the ceiling is? Ah, it's probably, I judge that about 12 feet, something like that. It, it, it's almost always this strong one over here. And Paul talked about how do we judge people. He said, outside the church, we don't judge. We don't condemn. We, we, that, that's God's business. He deals with that. He's the judge. But in the church, when we all agree that something is wrong, right, and it has to be we all agree, then we absolutely take action. We, we judge that. We condemn it. We deal with it. Today, we're going to talk about lawsuits, but really the issue is what do we do with things that don't fall into that camp of Everyone agrees this is wrong. What do we do with disputes? So follow along with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to read the first eight verses, and then next week we'll pick up the rest of the chapter. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 8. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, why do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, but instead... One brother takes another brother to court, and this in front of unbelievers. The very act that you have lawsuits among you means that you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So, 
Paul is now addressing the issues of how in the church do they deal with disputes? So again, like we said last week, if it's something that everybody knows is wrong, we all agree the scriptures speak definitively on it, everyone agrees, then we know how to take action in that situation. But what about all the things in life where the scriptures don't speak definitively and we don't all agree? What do we do when we have disputes in the church? And what Paul is upset about is that these folks in Corinth are dealing with disputes inside the church the same way they deal with disputes in the rest of life. They're going to the courts. Now, that sounds kind of weird to us because to us, a lawsuit is a huge deal. It costs money to file the suit. You need attorneys. There's a lot of time. Lots of things can be asked of you in the, the discovery phase. You might start a suit and the, the trial date won't even be for a year later. And it's going to cost you that whole time. Lawsuits for us are big deals. Even though, as I understand it, per capita, there are more lawsuits in America than anywhere else in the world. But I'll tell you, we have nothing on the people of Paul's time. They routinely used lawsuits to settle any sort of dispute because for them, it wasn't that difficult. If you wanted to start a lawsuit against someone, you just went down to the courthouse after lunch because the courts were open after lunch. You didn't have to file anything. You didn't have to pay anything. There were no motions. You just went on down there. And if you were a man of means, if you were senatorial or equestrian rank, if they remember your old Latin classes, what that means, if you had property, if you had wealth, you were expected to deal with your business dealings in the morning, but after lunch, you were expected to go down to the courts to be available as a judge or a juror in a case. That's where everyone who had money and could afford to spent their afternoons. Can you imagine being on jury duty every day, six days a week, never any break? That's what was expected of people. So if I'm angry at Tim because he promised me he'd play my favorite song and then he didn't play it on Sunday, I just go down to the courts Monday afternoon after lunch. I say, hey, I'm, I want to sue this guy. We had an agreement and he didn't keep it. And I get together a couple guys to be the jury and they'll send someone off to get Tim and bring him down here. And I plead my case. Kim ple Tim pleads his case. Boom, it just happens right there. There's no delay. Lawsuits are so common in the Greco-Roman world. There's a famous comedy written in the early 400s BC by a Greek playwright. And in it, a guy who's not Greek, he's a traveler, he's on vacation, he wants to come to Greece. So he's traveling to Greece and he's actually in Greece and doesn't know it. And he stops some people on the road in the play and he says, excuse me, is this the road to Greece? And they say, well, you're, 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 you're in Greece. And he laughs at them and says, oh no, this, this can't be Greece. He, he pulls out a map. He says, see, I'm following this road here. I, I'm right here. Can you tell me where Greece is? And the people are like, no, look, that, that right there, that is Greece. You're in Greece. And again, he laughs at them and he says, oh, this can't be Greece. Everyone knows that all they do all day long in Greece is sue each other. There's no lawsuits here at all. This can't be Greece, right? And everybody laughs because it's true. That happened all day long every day, all afternoon. That's all was going on in many of these cities is just lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. So it's totally normal for these people. They have a dispute in the church. 
They're angry at somebody, something happened they don't like, they deal with it the same way you deal with that anywhere in life. You just go down to the court in the afternoon and you file suit. It's totally normal in their world when they were pagans, which makes Paul's response even that much stronger. Because Paul's response is that this is absolutely not normal. Paul's response is this is absolutely unacceptable. I don't know if it comes through when you read this, but he is angry. Like he is being very pointed. I told you last week in chapter five how the the, the translators, we kind of have to massage the passage a little bit to turn it into good English because Paul's presumably dictating this. And it's almost as if he's kind of apoplectic. He's saying these phrases and not actually making sentences out of it. So we make sentences. Did you notice in here these different places where Paul says, do you not know? Do you not know? You know, that's kind of a funny construction in English. The translators are trying to get at the fact that Paul's saying these questions in this really fiercely rhetorical fashion. It's like, if I say to you, did you go to the store? That's just a yes or no question. You just answer it and we're done. But I could also say to you, you have gone to the store, right? Now, technically, that's still a yes or no question. But obviously, you can tell there's a lot more implied. You better say yes. Or I could flip it and do it the other way. I could say, you haven't gone to the store yet, have you? Again, technically, yes or no question. Oh, but there's, there's a lot more implied in there. You better say no, or there's going to be issues. That's the way Paul is writing these questions. You know, it's the idea of, you know, you know this is true. Of course you know this, right? He's inviting them to, to say yes. And so in verse three, where he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Again, it's these both forms of this rhetorical question. If I was gonna translate this, try to be a little more idiomatic, kind of get across some of the feel of what Paul's saying. It would be something like, you know that we're gonna judge angels, don't you? Oh, but not trivial matters. No, we'd never judge trivial matters, would we? Right? He, he's, he's being kind of sarcastic. He's clearly frustrated with them. And it comes to a head in verse five. I say this to shame you. Now, just flip your Bibles back just a couple of chapters to chapter four, verse 14. And I know for us, right, that was like, that, that was back in February, which is at least a decade ago, as near as I can tell. But Paul's just dictating this letter. It's a few hours out of his afternoon, probably. Like chapter four for him, who knows, was 10 minutes ago, maybe less. In chapter four, verse 14, Paul's pulling together this big, long, four chapter long argument he's been making about why unity is so important. And he's took some rabbit trails and things as we said, but, but that's his point is the importance of unity. And not that we all think alike or anything, but we all agree that Jesus is Lord, that we're unified in that. And Paul says this, I'm writing this not to shame you, but to warn you as my dear children, right? Very warm, trying to bring everything together. So you hear the difference now in chapter six, verse five, I say this to shame you. Like Paul finds this so shameful that that they are dealing with problems in the church the same way they deal with problems anywhere else in life by just taking it down to the court and finding some guys who are there who can serve as the jury. Now, notice, Paul doesn't say it's shameful that they have disagreements. 
He doesn't say to them, I can't believe you have disputes. I can't believe you don't all agree on anything. How can there possibly be any issues in your church? He doesn't say that. He knows that's not true. In fact, it doesn't come across in our translation, but he actually says that explicitly in what he writes. I've told you before, in the language Paul is writing, when you say, if something or other, you also have to say whether you think it's going to happen or not. Now, in English, I can say, if it rains, we'll move the party inside. If it rains. Do I think it's going to rain? You have no way of knowing. You, you, you just can't tell. There's no information. In Paul's language, you must say whether you think something absolutely will happen, if it rains, and it's going to, or it, it is possible, if it rains, and it could, or it's highly unlikely. I mean, maybe, but if it rains, but I really don't think it's going to, or it's not going to happen. Oh, if it were to rain, but it's not, you have to include that. So up above, when Paul says in verse two, don't you know that the people will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, and that's that top absolute level. So again, we'd have to add language in English to get that across. If you are to judge the world, and you are, this is absolutely true. It's a given. And here in verse four, when he says, therefore, if you have disputes, it's that second level of and you definitely could. Absolutely. It's not like, oh yeah, definitely. You have disputes all the time, going to be disputes, nothing you can do about it. But he absolutely acknowledges that, yep, there are disputes in the church. It happens. And of course there are. I mean, Paul's not stupid. He knows we're all fallen human beings. He's planted these churches. He knows what's going on in them. It's absolutely possible, Paul says, that you will have disputes. There's nothing wrong with that. What he finds so upsetting is how they are dealing with them. They are dealing with them by taking them to people outside the church. And again, to understand that, we got to roll our mind back. We just have to flip back a couple pages to chapter two. But again, for him, you know, maybe 20 minutes ago as he's talking, for us, this was back in January. But he talked back in chapter two about how we as Christians have God's spirit, but non-Christians do not. And so this is what he says in chapter two, verse 14 and 15. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. There's that word to judge again. Paul says that as a Christian, we have God's spirit. And that allows us to understand not only the physical nature of the world, but the spiritual nature as well. We can sit in judgment of all the aspects of the world, physical, spiritual, etc. But the non-Christian, anyone who isn't a Christian, doesn't have God's spirit. And they won't understand that. And so Paul is telling them, look, when you take things in the church, that's part of your spiritual life, and you put them before non-Christians, the non-Christians can't judge them correctly because they don't have the spirit. Christians should be judging the things without the spirit, and you flipped it upside down. The things without the spirit, those are the things, those people are judging the church. It won't work. 
they'll never judge correctly. That's what Paul said back in chapter two. Again, for us months ago, for him, you know, 20 minutes ago or something. They'll never understand. They can't possibly understand the spiritual things. They won't make good judgments about issues within the church. Now, as you can imagine, this whole system of, you know, everybody goes down to the courts after lunch and sits around and you bring a lawsuit, you go and pick your own jury. You can see how that could lead to tremendous corruption. And it did. A bribery was open and rampant. I want to sue Tim because he didn't sing my song, right? So I go down and I'm looking for guys to be on a jury. And one guy tells me, oh, come on, Jeff, give it a rest. That's not a big deal. Well, I'm not going to pick him for my jury. Another guy's like, oh, I hate it when music ministers do that, right? Oh, you are deaf on my jury. Or sometimes you'll just pay people outright. You know, you'll just pick three guys and you'll pay them each money so they'll vote for you at the, at the end of the case. Like, this is a terrible system to actually get justice. Probably Paul is thinking of some of that as well. But he tells us why this is so destructive in verse six. Brother takes brother to court and this in front of unbelievers. Do you remember what Jesus said was the mark? How would people know that we were his followers? It wasn't that we all wore crosses around our necks. It wasn't that we all sang when the saints come marching in. It was that we love each other. That's what Jesus says. They'll know you're my disciples by how you love one another. Now, remember that word love is the word agape. It's not friendship. It's devotion. It's being unselfish. Jesus doesn't say, they'll know you're my disciples because y'all are best friends and y'all go to the beach together all the time. Although, praise God, if you're devoted to people, that often happens as well. But that's not required. What is required of us is agape, devotion, unselfishly dealing with others in the church. Jesus said, when people see how unselfish you are towards one another, how you are devoted to one another in unselfishness, That's how they'll know you are my disciples. So what does it look like when two Christians have a dispute about something and they come into the pagan court? And maybe, you know, they're trying to bribe officials and whatever else. This destroys our witness, Paul says. You do this in front of unbelievers. You destroy the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. And Paul's not done. It gets worse because he goes on in verse seven to say, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Now those yous, you have, you've been defeated. Those yous are plural. It's you all. It's all of you. That's important. He's talking to the church If Paul wanted to talk to the individuals who were involved in this, he wanted to talk to the the two parties in a lawsuit, the yous would be singular. You singular have a lawsuit and you singular have been defeated. That's not what he's saying. He's talking to the entire body, the whole church. Because you take things that should be settled in the church and you settle them out of the church, Paul says, you have been completely defeated. Your witness is gone. Your fellowship is broken. Paul seems to think that these, anything can be settled in the church. All these issues, they can be settled in the church because we have God's spirit. We, okay, if you and I have an issue, and it, it really, he's just elaborating what Jesus said. If we have an issue, I need to come talk to you. You need to come talk to me. 
If we can't solve it that way, then we need to get some other people involved. That's just what Paul is talking about here. Get other people involved. Isn't there anyone who has enough wisdom to help you with this issue? Paul says, certainly somewhere in the church, we could find people to help us solve this problem, to judge this problem, decide what is right, decide what is wrong. When we don't do that, When we get to the point where we disagree and then one of us goes off to bring the pagans in, like, okay, well, I'll enlist their support, right? Either trying to actually get some sort of justice or bribing them so we win the case. When we do that, Paul says, the whole church is destroyed. It's defeated. You've already lost, Paul says. Your fellowship has been shattered. Your witness is completely irrelevant. And so then... Paul makes what I think is just a remarkable statement at the end of that verse. Verse 7, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Well, because I don't want to be wronged and cheated, of course. Who wants to lose? Who wants to be wronged? But Paul says that the fact that you are off taking problems that should be solved in the church and you're off solving them elsewhere... You're off taking them to pagan courts. Paul says, you're you're destroying your witness. You're destroying your fellowship. It would be better to be wronged. And if that's not strong enough, um, that's a passive in our language. You know, we can say something that's active, like I can do wrong. I'm active. I'm acting. I'm doing something. Or it can be passive. I can receive it. I can be wronged. Paul is speaking in something we don't have called a middle, which combines both of those things. It's the idea that you are active, but it it comes back on you as if it was passive. So again, we'd have to add words to make this translation work. We'd have to say something like, choose purposefully to be wrong or cheat yourself and be cheated. Like he's being really explicit here on what he expects, because he says, your only other option is verse eight. You cheat and do wrong. Your choices are to choose to be wronged, except to be cheated, or to cheat and do wrong. And isn't it interesting? He doesn't ever talk about being right. He doesn't ever talk about who's right. He doesn't ever talk about justice. He doesn't ever talk about, well, you know, if your case is in this situation, if these things are going on, that doesn't seem to enter into his thinking. The only two options that he gives us is to do wrong or to be wronged. If we get to a point where we have a dispute inside the church and we can't solve it, like we can't settle it, we can't come together, we can't bring other people around us, then Paul says you have two options. You can do what is wrong or you can accept to be wronged. Now, who does that sound like? Who is it who was 100% right and yet he consciously, willfully chose to be wronged? Who is it who said, no one takes my life from me, but I give it. I give it up. Paul is calling us in this passage to be like Christ. Christ who voluntarily accepted injustice. 
Christ who never did anything wrong, but accepted all of that wrong put upon him. Paul is calling us to be like Jesus rather than do wrong and win. Because I think in our world, we will excuse anything with the word justice. If we can fly the justice flag, then we can excuse anything. It's not, it's not for me, it's the principle. It's not for me, it's for everyone else. I would never do this for myself, but, but because of all these other reasons, because of justice, I have to fight this fight. I don't see Paul saying any of that. I see Paul saying, you are entirely capable of solving your disputes within the church. If you can't solve them together, just the two of you or three of you, four of you, or whatever the dispute is, then bring some other folks in the church in. Get other people. You have people in the church. You have brothers and sisters who can judge these things. They, they can decide. They can say, this is right and this is wrong and this is what we're going to do. This is how it's going to play out. There are people in the church who can help. But if we get to the point where, where we just can't, we can't solve this dispute, then Paul says, better to be wronged, better to choose and accept to be cheated than to act and to cheat someone else. And brothers and sisters, this is hard. This is hard for us to do. It is hard for us to accept that someone would wrong us and we would not seek justice. But again, Paul's just calling us to be like our Lord. Now, let me make the same caveats about this I've been making the whole time. He's talking about the things where we can't agree. Last week, that was the things where we could agree. When we all agree that something is wrong, that's not a dispute anymore. We just take action. This is the case where we can't agree. Um, and these are civil courts, not criminal courts. Paul will say in Romans 13, hey, you absolutely have to obey the criminal law. You have to obey the criminal penal codes. If Rome decides to punish you because you've broken the law, then you need to accept that. Paul has no problem with the criminal courts, but he has a huge problem with the civil courts. He has a huge problem with Christians not settling their issues brothers and sisters together in the church, people who have the spirit who can help us settle these issues. So let me leave you with this. I think what happens, like I think about my own life, I think about the people out there. When there is a dispute that cannot be settled or frankly can't be settled the way I want it to, because you know, we all think we're right. We wouldn't have a dispute if we didn't all of us think we were doing the right thing. When we get into those sorts of disputes that can't be settled, I see that one of two things happens. Either people do exactly what Paul is saying and they, they go off. They try and enlist the outside world. They try and talk to reporters or newspapers. They, they threaten lawsuits. They, they want to somehow bring in the pagan world to apply pressure to what they want to have happen. And I think Paul says, absolutely not. No, absolutely not. Not in the church. That destroys our witness. Or we leave. We're like, well, okay, then I'm out of here, right? If I, if I can't have the dispute the way I want it, then I'm gone. In other words, we break fellowship. 
Like the two things that Paul says he doesn't want to see happen, the two dangers of this, that we ruin our witness and we ruin our fellowship, we choose one of those two. So let me encourage you, if you are in a dispute, because again, as Paul says, you absolutely could be, right? Again, you don't have to be, but you certainly could be. If you are in a dispute with someone in the church, if, if there is some sort of conflict or dispute within the church, talk to each other. That's what Jesus told us to do. If you can't, if that doesn't work, great, bring some other people with you. There are people in the church. When Paul says, is there no one among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers, right? That's another one of those ironic rhetorical questions. Of course there is. Of course there is. Bring in some other wise folks to help you work through this. And think about your actions, Think about what you want to do when you're in a dispute and ask yourself these two questions. Don't ask yourself if you're right. I'm sure you think you're right. I certainly always think I'm right in any dispute. That's why it's a dispute. Ask yourself this first, is what I'm going to do, will it harm our our mission? Will it harm our evangelism? Will it harm our witness to the world? They will know you are my my disciples by how you love one another, how you are devoted to one another in unselfishness. Will anything that I do harm that and make that not true? Then don't do that. And secondly, will anything I do break fellowship? Will it harm the unity and the community of the body of Christ? If it will, then don't do that. Do the hard work of reconciliation. Do the hard work of bringing people in and working through these issues. And at the end of the day, as Paul says, it is better as a follower of Christ to entrust ourselves to God and be wronged rather than to do wrong in our own defense. Let's pray. Uh, Jesus, I, I confess, I, I feel it as much as I'm sure my brothers and sisters do, the, 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 the terrible idea of giving up my rights, of accepting to be wronged rather than harm your bride, to accept to be cheated because there's just no way we can work this out and come to an agreement. Lord, I pray that you would help us. I know there are disputes in our church because our church is full of people and people are fallen. You know that. Paul knew that. We know that. Lord, I pray for our body that you will help us to be people that do exactly what you told us to. Be people who go and talk to each other. And if we can't resolve it, we we bring other people along with us. We, We do just what Paul says. We look for wise people in the body who can help us sort through these issues. Oh, Lord, give us the courage to do these things. And Lord Jesus, give us the courage at the end of the day to obey to to consciously, willingly be like you. Accept injustice rather than do what is wrong. Jesus, you know how hard that is for us. You are human. You understand how difficult that is. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help everyone who is in any sort of dispute within the church to deal with it as you have called us to so that we do have a witness to the world, that they do see how we are devoted to one another, so that we do guard our fellowship and our community as your people. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. You modeled this for us, and now we can follow this. 
So we pray in your name, Lord, always. We pray in your name. Amen.